Hello again, and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. In this episode, we'll continue our short series on Douglas Mawson and Antarctic exploration. This time, we'll review Mawson's first trip to Antarctica as part of Ernest Shackleton's 1908 Nimrod expedition. Though he was young and this was his first foray into the icy territory, his obvious intelligence, robust constitution and leadership skills marked him out early for momentous work and he was tasked with joining teams to explore Mount Erebus and to locate the magnetic South Pole. Then in episode 23, we'll focus on Mawson's leadership of the Australasian Antarctic expedition itself. But just before we continue with Mawson's story, I wanted to remind you I'll put a reference list, some images, links and other material I quote or use in this episode on the Australian Histories Podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's histories spelt I-E-S. I'll also be suggesting another great podcast you might like to check out at the end of this one. I was speaking to someone the other day who was otherwise very confident with their phone and all the useful apps, but who was unsure about the best way to get the latest episodes. You may well be on top of this, but one or two of you might benefit from knowing that the easiest way to keep up to date with my podcast, and others you like, is to choose a podcast player on your preferred device. iPhones have a built-in app offered by Apple, and Androids have something similar. Or you could download a dedicated podcatcher app, like Podbean, or use any other one you like, and search within that app for the podcast you want. When you find it, you simply click subscribe. Subscribing to a podcast is generally completely free, as mine is, though of course if you love it you can always make a contribution through the options offered on a podcaster's website. Subscribing will mean you get notified in that app when a new episode is released, and you can decide to listen or to download at your leisure. A setting on your phone can be switched to only download the full program when you click and request it, so no files come through with the program alert unless you choose that option. Anyway, sorry if that was already quite clear to you, but I hope it helps some of you get easier access to your desired programs. Of course, you can always unsubscribe later if you wish. And I'm always banging on about your reviews helping to lift the program's visibility. I've since discovered that it's the number of subscriptions that add to that algorithm and boost visibility. So, of course, the more people who subscribe, rather than just listen to one episode at a time, the higher the visibility online. So, of course, now I'm going to be encouraging you to hit the subscribe on all those pod apps too, if you'd like to support the show. Anyway, speaking of show, let's get on with it. In the last episode, we left our story with Mawson just about to board the Nimrod in New Zealand's Littleton Harbour in Christchurch, along with his old university professor and career mentor, Professor Edgeworth David. Initially, Mawson had asked to join Shackleton's expedition only for the round trip on the Nimrod, giving him several weeks to see an existing continental ice shelf and learn more about glaciation in place, which would inform his ongoing studies in outback South Australia, where evidence of long-past glaciation was visible. But Shackleton, finding him, quote, an attractive and interesting personality, a most cheerful person, a born optimist overflowing with energy, unquote, was so impressed by Mawson that he offered him employment as the expedition physicist for the full year. Mawson jumped at the opportunity for further study and exploration in the unique environment. So let's now look at his experiences on his first trip south, the Nimrod expedition with Shackleton. With great excitement, Mawson and David made their way to the desperately cramped and rather overloaded Nimrod and took the opportunity to join in celebrations that were put on in Christchurch for the departing explorers. It was important to conserve all their fuel and supplies until they reached the Antarctic Circle, so their ship was to be towed as far south as possible by another ship, the SS Cunha. For the departure on New Year's Day of 1908, Regatta Day in Christchurch, Great crowds gathered to celebrate and see off the adventurers. Some sources suggested 30,000 people were on land around the peninsulas or in boats on the water, including special steamers and four warships. 
The Kunya would carry some of the supplies and tow the Nimrod right into the ice pack surrounding Antarctica before transferring everything over and setting them loose to continue alone. Hall records the Kunya as being the first steel-hulled vessel to have crossed the Antarctic Circle at that time and that the valiant little ship had towed the overloaded Nimrod 4,200 kilometres. Unfortunately, the excitement and joy of the send-off was to be short-lived. By the 2nd of January, the weather was turning and rough seas increased, resulting in what Mawson described as a hurricane by the 9th. The danger was extreme. They lost materials overboard, a dog and one of the ponies, and he noted in his diary that they thought they may not survive at all. But the tow ship stayed with them, and in the following days the weather did improve, allowing them to recover and make some repairs. Almost all had been a little seasick, and it must have been a dismal start to a great adventure. But Mawson was particularly afflicted by seasickness, and he had taken to sleeping in a lifeboat where his constant vomiting would not bother his cabin companions. One expeditioner, John Davis, found him there, and noting that he'd not eaten for days, brought Mawson tinned pears. He later got him to eat a little more, and as the seas settled, Mawson returned inside to warm up and regain his strength with hot cocoa. <laughs> Davis and Mawson would retain a lifelong friendship, though there were many testing periods ahead of them at this point. Towards the 15th, the pack ice was seen ahead, and so the Cunha began preparing to return. They gathered the last of the mail from the men, amongst which was David's letter home that I mentioned in the previous episode, telling his wife and his employer that, well, he would not be returning now with the Nimrod, as he'd said, but instead wintering over with the other expeditioners and would therefore see them in a year or so. <laughs> Very sly. The last of their supplies were transferred over, and the Nimrod, now seriously overloaded with the horses, dogs, hut-building supplies and other provisions, began the serious work of navigating through the ice to their desired landing point. That pack ice turned out to be only a belt of icebergs, with mostly open sea beyond, so they made good progress initially. They began seeing Adelie penguins on the ice, and in the area numerous petrels and skewer gulls. Mawson's diary also notes... Whales, fairly numerous. And as the ice became more dense, they also saw emperor penguins and seals. Shackleton intended to make for Barrier Inlet at the eastern edge of the Ross Ice Shelf to set up their base. But large areas had carved off the shelf since his last visit with Scott's party and the area now contained a bay, which they named Bay of Wales after seeing so many there. He no longer felt the shelf area would be stable enough to overwinter. Though interestingly, Roald Amundsen's team would safely land there for their expedition four years later. So Shackleton took the advice of Professor David, turning instead to make his base on the land back at Cape Royds in McMurdo Sound. David was pleased, believing much better science work could be done there anyway, but it did mean that their resulting base would now be a further 100 or so kilometres from the South Pole, with difficult terrain in between and this would crucially impact on Shackleton's attempt to reach it. The nearby volcano base created a barrier to reaching the best path to the pole, and alternate access across the sea would become problematic in the warmer summer months as it melted. It turned out that the weather at Cape Royds was substantially more challenging than it would have been at the Bay of Wales too, and the water surrounding actually created other difficulties associated with transport and the laying of food depots and the like. Mawson's diaries also record the loss of half the surviving horses as a result of them eating the volcanic gravel while tethered at the base of nearby Mount Erebus. But wherever they set up, there would be some difficulty in that extreme environment, so they just got on with it and began transferring their supplies, setting up their hut, settling in the animals, including nine sledge dogs, a few sheep, the ponies, and stowing away the year's provisions. The weather was not kind, giving them all an immediate taste of the year to come. By mid-February, with everything unloaded, the Nimrod itself was making its way back north, leaving the 15 men behind for the year of adventure and exploration. Only Shackleton, Wilde and Joyce had previous polar experience, accompanying Scott's discovery expedition in 1901, so there would be a very steep learning curve for the rest of them. The expeditioners included... Ernest Shackleton, the expedition's leader, Jamison Adams, meteorologist and second-in-command, 
Frank Wilde, the store person, Ernest Joyce, the dog handler, Philip Brocklehurst, a geologist, Raymond Priestley, working as the assistant geologist, only 21 years old, Eric Marshall and Alastair McKay, both doctors, James Murray, the biologist, William Roberts, the cook, Bernard Day, the mechanic, George Marsden, their artist, Bertrand Armitage, the horse handler, Edgemont David, the Australian geologist and expedition scientific leader, and our Douglas Mawson, also a geologist but employed as a physicist for the team. All of them trained in some extra skill that might prove useful, such as taxidermy for preservation of specimens, or typesetting and printing to facilitate Shackleton's desire to print the first book in Antarctica, for example. So there were plenty of tasks they all needed to undertake or assist with. Mawson had a space for his photographic darkroom, and there was much other scientific equipment being frequently used by various expeditioners. When Shackleton was recruiting for this expedition, not everyone that he invited accepted, as Scott was also flagging a second attempt on the pole, scheduled for 1910. Some felt it would be a betrayal to join Shackleton when Scott was returning himself, he being considered the leading British Antarctic explorer at that time, and Scott was very annoyed too at Shackleton's plans, initially suggesting he give them up and join him instead. Shackleton's expedition would impact on Scott's plans in a number of ways, not least that it would split his ability to raise the necessary funds and split the focus of attention. And Scott was desperate to be the first to the pole, having failed in his attempt last trip, and he did not want to be beaten by his apprentice. While Scott could not dissuade him altogether, he did manage to extract a promise from Shackleton that he would not use the previous base on Ross Island at Hut Point, which Scott intended to reuse himself. But the decision that Shackleton made after rejecting his intended ice shelf site meant that he was now back in the McMurdo Sound region that he had told Scott he would avoid. Cape Royd was only 30 kilometres north of Scott's previous base at Hut Point. But the safety of the expedition largely cancelled out his gentleman's agreement with Scott. And strictly speaking, he was not at Scott's camp, setting up a separate one instead. But it certainly seemed way too close for Scott to be happy when he heard... Though Scott's previous camp had been near Mount Erebus too, none from that expedition had taken much interest in the active volcano, towering 3,794 metres above the sound. David, the geologist, was very interested, and he suggested to Shackleton that they should climb and record it. Shackleton agreed. This expedition was to generally have more of a scientific bent than Scott's and he appointed David leader of the climb, with Mawson and Mackay to accompany him to the summit, and three others, Adam, Marshall and Brocklehurst, to help sledge the gear to the mountain's base, and join them for the summit if supplies allowed. For all six, it was to be their first experience of Antarctic travel, and in the spirit of finding a way or making one, some of them fashioned homemade crampons from metal spikes and leather, to be strapped onto their boots and assist in climbing the steep, icy terrain they would encounter. Ayers described this first Antarctic outing beautifully in his book, and I'll lean heavily on his descriptions and quote from the text. On March the 5th they set off, with ten days' provisions, hauling their sledge 11 kilometres over the rocky and icy ridges of the glacier moraine, climbing up 840 metres above base camp. Having to cross the sharp snow ridges caused by the prevailing winds, some reaching a metre high, was hard work, with the sledge capsizing on several occasions. Interestingly, that spiky terrain of upright ice ridges is called stastrugi. Their kit consisted of tents, reindeer skin boots, known as finesco, with fur on the outside and internally stuffed with dry sand grass to absorb moisture. The crampons would strap to these boots. They also had cowhide ski boots, but no skis for this trip. Also, reindeer skin sleeping bags. And how heavy would those things have been to haul, compared to the lightweight down or high-tech bags of today? And Hall describes the temperatures dropping to minus 23 at this time, so one would hope the reindeer skins were super cosy. They also carried survey equipment, cooking utensils, kerosene stove, fuel and food, along with scientific measurement equipment and a heavy camera and photography plates. 
what this weighed can only be guessed at, but for my money it must have been substantial. Imagine hauling a weight like that over spiky one metre high upright icicles. The following day, after climbing a further five kilometres to an altitude of 1,700 metres, they decided to ditch some of their gear, including the sledge and some of the return food, and continue on on foot, carrying only three days' food, with the rest of the equipment bundled on their back. There's a great picture showing several of them traipsing up the mountain with all manner of gear strapped on, higgledy-piggledy, a giant tent pole sticking out sideways. This was not the tidy kit a hiker might pack up in a rucksack today. I'll post that image on the website. The steeper it got, the more dangerous it became, with McKay sliding down the slope 30 metres at one point. As they approached the summit slope and made the next night's camp, a blizzard came in, which kept them holed up the following day and restricted their opportunity to eat and drink having difficulty setting up the kerosene stove to cook or melt snow for water, as they'd left most of the tent poles behind, making do with pretty much just a cover rather than a tented space to shelter in. But luckily, the next day they were able to begin the steepest part of the climb. In the thinning air, McKay fainted on a ledge after unwisely and vigorously exerting himself, digging out steps with his pickaxe on the steep approach, and he had to be rescued by David and Marshall. Ayers notes this gung-ho behaviour by McKay seems to match his personality and, only a few years later, on an expedition into the Arctic, he led some members of the expedition in a mutiny of sorts, which resulted in their deaths. And we will see a little of this rebellious propensity again later in this expedition. By now, Brocklehurst was developing frostbite on his feet. Apparently, he was wearing the cowhide boots rather than the superior finesco and so he was forced to spend the day keeping his feet cosy in the sleeping bag while the others made for the summit of the main crater. Though they worked hard at restoring circulation, one toe did not respond and it was amputated a few weeks later. On March 10th, they reached the summit, where they could observe the volcanic activity visually and smell the venting sulphur. Mawson found his camera did not cope well with the extreme cold, so pictures were limited, but they were able to get a number of geological samples and scientific measurements, which proved to be pretty accurate, confirmed by more modern measurements taken later in the century. Having gathered the data, they beat a hasty retreat, incautiously sliding down the slopes using their pickaxes to break. With only brief stops and sleep, they powered on towards the hut leaving the sledge behind on the rough terrain to be collected later, in their haste to get indoors, as another blizzard approached. So their first foray had been a scientific success, with geological specimens collected and other data recorded. But, importantly, it had also educated the team about the need for more careful planning, especially regarding appropriate equipment, like those crampons, and the dangers of blizzards which had scattered and damaged the store of gear they'd left behind on the sledge while climbing, had they been further from the hut or caught out in bad weather again and delayed, these losses may have proved fatal. The route they took only allowed sledging for part of the way, meaning much had to be carried haphazardly with extreme difficulty. They had damaged more gear when they unwisely chose to roll some bundled equipment down the slopes, sliding after them in an attempt to speed their trip home. They would need to take a good deal more care in the future. Much of the difficulty could be blamed on their inexperience in the extreme environment, but they would need to lift their game if they were to survive the more challenging treks ahead, and they would have to take more seriously the possibility of being caught out in blizzards and stalled for additional days. Over the months, they undertook more local geological investigations, measurements of ice and snow, and they recorded the meteorological conditions. Mawson took regular wind speed records and analysed varieties of snow and ice and geological specimens and he studied the southern lights, the aurora australis. Before they lost the short hours of sunlight entirely for the winter season, they gathered more food stores, killing penguins and stacking them up to freeze. How gruesome does that sound? Hmm, needs must, I suppose. In the evenings and on into the long winter, They worked on the printing press, creating a publication called Aurora Australis, with a fanciful contribution written by Mawson called Bathibin, with packing cases being fashioned into the book covers. And other entertainments included amateur theatricals and book readings and music played on a gramophone they'd brought with them. 
Their hut, their only living space, was just 10 metres long by 5.8 wide and 2.4 metres high, and it was entirely without windows. So it would have been a dingy and squeezy space for the large group, housing the 15 men and all their equipment. It was divided into eight cubicles, housing two men in each space, four on each side of the cramped communal open area in the middle. At times the long central table was hoisted up on pulleys to the roof to allow for floor space for working on sledges or harnesses and so on. Hull writes that the team consisted of strong personalities from varied backgrounds and when tensions arose it was usually David that diffused the situation or Shackleton himself being their respected leader but he records one incident where Mawson had to prize McKay's hands from around Robert's neck after a confrontation. As mentioned in the earlier episode, the cabin fever in confined spaces would have been a particular challenge in the depths of the 24-hour winter darkness. But as the equinox ticked over and the plans for the spring sledging journeys were being formulated, the teams would have felt a certain relief looking forward to the sun peaking above the horizon again. I saw a beautiful little video the other day showing off solar panels being installed at the Casey Research Station recently to augment the diesel power supply during the summer season. What I found interesting was seeing the panels being installed in a time-lapse video to the side of the building facing the sun. Of course, the sun there would not be overhead, but I hadn't thought about that before. Even in summer, being at that southern point, you're never going to get the sun up overhead the way we experience it in Australia. (laughs) So I'll place a link to that story on the website too if you're interested. Anyway, returning to the explorers, Shackleton was happy to have the fellows do some science, but his main desire was to be the first to reach the geographic South Pole, and he would lead a team in an attempt on that himself. He also wanted a second party to locate the magnetic South Pole, and he appointed David to lead that northern team. Both were spectacularly ambitious goals for the inexperienced men, and perhaps all involved failed to really appreciate that. In the resulting records and diaries, the thing that really stood out was how stressful and difficult the living quarters and environments were, and how much pressure the teams were under, and yet, in general, they kept the discipline and firmly hierarchical management structure in place, on their public face anyway. But in the diaries you do see the stresses emerging, the psychological difficulties being experienced by some, and there were instances of people cracking, but it just surprises me that they didn't all go a little Lord of the Flies in those close quarters for so long. Perhaps they were saved from complete societal breakdown by at least not being crazy enough to spoil the end of each other's books. (laughs) As mentioned before, Shackleton's expedition hoped to find two South Poles, and we should talk about that. The Geographic Pole and the magnetic pole. The geographic pole is fairly straightforward. It can be calculated as the central point of the Earth's rotation, the point in the south where the imaginary pole would pierce the Earth through its centre, coming out at the corresponding north pole, that point serving as the central axis where the spinning occurs. Any textbook or internet search will show you an image of that concept. The Australian Antarctic Division describes the true geographical poles as moving approximately 10 metres a year with the wobble of the Earth, and so it's recalculated each year. Currently, the exact point is located near the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Locating and perhaps understanding the magnetic pole is a little more problematic, well, for me anyway. Quoting from the Australian Antarctic Division website, the South Magnetic Pole is the point on the Earth's surface where the direction of the Earth's magnetic field is vertically upwards. The magnetic poles are also not fixed points. Indeed, their positions can move many kilometres per year, with the south magnetic pole presently moving in a generally north to northwesterly direction, according to the Australian Antarctic Division. Wikipedia describes it as a wandering point. And I'll place an image that Wiki provides to show you its path of movement from the early exploration era we're talking about into the 1980s. Quote, The south magnetic pole is constantly shifting due to changes in Earth's magnetic field. As of 2005, it was calculated to lie off the coast of Antarctica, between Adeliland and Wilkes Land. In 2015, it lay around 64 degrees 28 minutes south, 136 degrees 59 minutes east. That point is outside the Antarctic Circle. 
Due to polar drift, the pole is currently moving about 10 to 15 kilometres per year. So the Earth is embraced by a magnetic field which curves around the globe. If I understand it correctly, it is this which stops all life from being snuffed out by the ravages of solar winds, which constantly head our way from the Sun. The Earth's magnetism causes them to deflect around the Earth. So the South and North magnetic poles mark the points where the Earth's magnetic field curves back into the Earth to close the loop and would be discoverable as the place where your compass would point directly up if such a thing were possible. Again, I'll post an image that illustrates the field around the Earth. In the areas where the field approaches the Earth vertically, we can see the magnetism manifest in the aurora australis and borealis, the southern and northern lights, after strong sun surface activity. Last year was a particularly good year for the lights, and lucky punters in Tasmania, and even some coastal areas in Victoria, were able to see the aurora, which is usually only visible from much further south. Another thing to note is the difference between the Arctic and Antarctic. They are not simply mirrors of each other, as their names might imply. The National Snow and Ice Data Centre in the US has a website explaining the differences, so we'll just note here, Antarctica is a snow and ice covered land mass surrounded by an ocean which ices up and breaks up to an extent each season, allowing the broken ice to float northwards into the open sea. Those are the ice packs and the icebergs mentioned earlier. The Arctic in the north is a semi-enclosed ocean, almost completely surrounded by land. The ice there is formed in and on the water, piling up and thickening into ridge ice thicker than the ice depths in the southern landmass. As a result, the sea ice that forms in the Arctic is thicker and not as mobile as the sea ice around the Antarctic continent. While the core around the pole always remains frozen, well, to date anyway, the extended Arctic ice pack coverage reduces in spring and summer, reaching a minimum around mid-September, and then increases again into the winter season. Summer ice used to be about 50% of Arctic winter cover, but climate change has already seen a trend to reduced coverage in the Arctic. And of course a similar trend is being recorded in ice coverage reduction and increase in glacier carving in the south. The South Pole is located on the polar plateau in East Antarctica. Its high elevations and its long sunless winters mean the temperatures there can be the lowest in the world. Weather patterns south are very different to the opposite pole. The ocean currents and winds in the north are sort of moderated and constrained by the land surrounding the Arctic and are affected by the warmer Atlantic waters coming in from the south. The NSIDC also reminds us of other differences, including that polar bears only live in the Arctic, while penguins only live in the southern hemisphere, including Antarctica. We know that there are some penguin species found in a number of southern habitats, including Angola, Argentina, Chile, Namibia, New Zealand and South Africa. And of course Melbourne and the southern coast of Victoria has colonies of little fairy penguins, which draw in the tourists in droves to watch them come back to their burrows in the evening after a day out fishing. They sure are little cuties. Another thing that would have been helpful for our southern explorers to note is that in the Antarctic, the currents and winds tend to flow without interruption around the continent in a west-to-east -east direction. There's no land above it to interrupt the flow like there is in the north. Any southern sailor will know about the roaring 40s above Antarctica. This windy phenomenon acts like a barricade to any warmer air and water coming in from the north. And that quirk of nature made the lives of the southern explorers more difficult and uncomfortable particularly around Cape Royd. Shackleton himself would lead Wild, Marshall and Adams in the attempt at the geographic South Pole. He appointed David to lead the second group to locate the Magnetic Pole, estimated to be about 650 kilometres north-northwest into Victoria land at that time, and David chose Mawson and Mackay to accompany him. In August, Shackleton and others headed out to check out Scott's old base at Hut Point and to leave some supplies there. Later, various teams laid further advanced supply depots in preparation for the attempts on the poles, the furthest being laid 160 kilometres from their base camp. It doesn't seem very far out from base camp when you consider that Shackleton estimated his return journey would be more than 2,700 kilometres. 
Anyway, the magnetic pole team was to set off first. As part of his fundraising for the trip, Shackleton had brought along many gadgets and novelties to try in the Antarctic, including a car, at that time a fairly new and exotic contraption itself, which he hoped would haul supplies along the flatter ranges of sea ice to depots and help them along. But in general, even in the smooth terrain, it proved to be too temperamental and time-consuming to be of much value. And indeed the vehicle caused McKay to fracture his arm and he subsequently began his sledging journey still sporting a sling. Their written brief from Shackleton included the following tasks. First priority, taking magnetic observations to determine the dip and position of the magnetic pole and if time and supplies permit, try to reach the point. Secondly, they should survey Victoria Land and its coast as much as possible. He suggested Mawson spend a fortnight recording the geology of the Western Mountains and prospecting at Dry Valley for minerals of economic value. No doubt this was part of his obligation to funders and may lead to riches for them all. But it was to be done on the way back, not at the expense of Priority One. So, fame beats fortune, apparently. Shackleton also noted in their instructions that should anything happen to the leader, David... Mawson was to take command, so he certainly saw something exceptional in Mawson's capabilities, despite his youth at the time. They were further advised, if their return was delayed, they were to head directly to the coast at Relief Inlet in Terranova Bay and signal with their mirrors to the Nimrod, which would be then back in the south and looking for them at that agreed time. That seems such a precarious backup plan to me. I hope the mirrors worked well in snowy, fogged-in and blizzard conditions. The things these folks achieved without the mobile phone or the radio, it's absolutely astounding. The program was a very ambitious one for the time available. The three would travel on foot, hauling two sledges, which Ayers wrote weighed over a tonne combined, so a very substantial kit to manhaul, the dogs remaining at the hut being used for depot laying and other tasks. They were to have their personal challenges too. Jacker describes David as 50 years old, a courteous, tactful and wise man. McKay was a 30-year-old Scottish doctor with a military and policing background. And Mawson as the energetic, respectful and academic mentee to David. But the mix of personalities was not entirely successful for the demanding task they had been set and there was to be angst for this northern party. They set off on October 5, 1908. Once underway hauling, the weight of the sledges soon caused them difficulty and they could only progress by dragging one sled first and then returning for the other, once again tripling the distance, eventually covering more than 2,000 kilometres on foot over 122 days. Fortunately for us, Mawson resumed writing his diaries on this trip, which he had apparently neglected since arrival. And that was a shame, as he kept no record of his daily life in the cramped hut, or his thoughts on the Mount Erebus trek, for example. It seems that while Mawson was fond of David, and certainly had a level of professional respect, David had some very finicky behaviours, which became irritating in the extreme, under the pressure of the polar trekking. But Jacker, in collating and editing Mawson's diaries, also noted a level of his own intolerance showing there in the early part of the trip, Entries like, quote, October, Professor broke attachment to sledge meter this evening in a rage when camping. Prof finds it necessary to change his socks in morning before breakfast, also has to wear two pairs per day, and comes in late for sleeping bag and sits on everybody. God only knows what he does. And he is so covered in clothes that he can hardly walk and hardly get into bag. That is to say, he hardly leaves any room for us as he had very nicely made us take the side places, unquote. Well, surely that's one of the perks of being a leader. <laughs> so it was not boding well for a harmonious trip early on. Whether the fault was mostly with David, being a difficult bunkmate in close quarters, or that the difficulties of the excursion made Mawson and McKay more sensitive and intolerant to his usual irritations is hard to gauge. But there was a strict leadership hierarchy in place, and so they soldiered on. But, like a whiny child, Mawson's entries continued to convey similar sentiments. Quote, 
we were quite warm last night and have almost forgiven the prof for keeping us up so long before getting to bed, etc. He generally comes into tent after we are both in bed and spends half hour on top of the bag arranging and changing things. He sits on our legs and faces alternately. Unquote. Oh dear. Actually, I'm of an age where I remember communal rooms in youth hostels. Oh, the exasperation of being wakened by the latecomer fussing about with some mega loud crinkling plastic bag for endless minutes and then snoring heartily when they finally did make it to bed. I'm starting to think it's a miracle that anyone makes it back alive from these polar treks. Mawson also recorded disagreements occurring related to the food and preparation of supplies. So the implications and objections were becoming more serious for them all. There was some argument from Mawson about how long they should pursue the elusive pole before turning back to the other tasks. And as time went on, David appeared, or at least was reported by Mawson, to be flagging both physically and mentally. Over time, though, Mawson did appear more accepting of David's idiosyncrasies, though by then McKay was becoming quite hostile towards him, demanding that Mawson declare David unfit and force him to sign over leadership. McKay's patience became further strained, and he was even seen to force the dawdling David ahead with a boot to his back. By this time they were really struggling to even make it to the coast for the backup rescue date with the Nimrod, so you can imagine the angst over the professor's slow pace. On the outward stretch they were able to lay food depots for their return journey, so the sleds would get a little lighter as they moved on, and for some of the time they travelled at night when the surface was harder, providing less drag on the sled. When they were in areas where animals were present, they supplemented their diet with seal and penguin. Ayers recording Mawson's specialty as, quote, a delicious crumbed seal in its own blood. Ew, I'm almost gagging just reading that. I can see I'm not cut out for this kind of adventure. Actually, I knew my chances of getting to the Antarctic have always been low. I have no scientific or other skills that would be helpful enough, I think. Though I don't mind telling you, I do suck up at every opportunity to... <laughs> to a paleontologist colleague who visits there regularly, but to date, no invitation. In doing this research, though, discovering the seal delicacies that seemed good enough to record in one's diary, and noting my horror at the possible necessity where the base electrician might be required to remove my appendix, or worse, somebody spoils the book ending of that novel I carted all the way down there, I now sadly realise that the likelihood I could manage in the Antarctic was very slim indeed. What completely extinguished it for me, though, was a tweet that I saw recently from the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, noting that in search of good protein in that heroic age of exploration, some made a meal of seal brains. Now, I know the food there today is top quality and completely nutritionally balanced, but what if some emergency arose and we were all thrust back into finding a way or making one? Oh, the horror. Interestingly, as McKay became more difficult, David used the scarce food to placate him, and Mawson noted this mollifying behaviour. As they got to the pointy end of the return trip, though, tensions and the difficult behaviour worsened. Personal dynamics are interesting, but at this stage I think McKay's behaviour flipped over into outright bullying of David, and I'm not sure that Mawson, a young man but second in command, was really able to take control. But David's slowness and lack of drive certainly was frustrating and would become a danger to them making their deadline at the coast. On December 31st, Mawson records, quote, Something has gone very wrong with him of late, as he is almost always morose. I think David probably struggled with the environment right from the start, and at his age and fitness level, the task may have been harder going than for the other two. Mawson also wrote, quote, The prof is certainly a fine example of a man for his age, but he is a great drag on our progress. So it was difficult for all. As well as being stressful, it was also dangerous. Both David and Mawson had the experience of falling into crevasses, fortunately both being recovered by their teammates. And the sledge also slid into a crevasse, mercifully becoming wedged before it could be lost. Having the team reach the magnetic pole was an important achievement for Shackleton, for the bragging rights, but it was a very challenging task. Marking the actual magnetic pole as a single point is difficult, as we discussed earlier. 
On January 17, 1909, the Northern team, led by David, finally reached their goal, fixing the pole's position as 72 degrees 15 minutes south, 155 degrees 16 minutes east, at an elevation of 2,210 metres. There they planted a British flag and, as was the norm at the time, claimed formal possession of the area for the British Empire. While Shackleton claimed their record position as a success in locating the magnetic pole, when Mawson's instrument readings were analysed in New Zealand two years later, it seemed they had just missed the area, which would likely have been a little further to the northwest. One of the sources described their achievement as being in the neighbourhood, but not in the street. So there's now some doubt about the claim. The magnetic pole had taken them so long to locate that they now only had a couple of weeks or so to turn back and reach the coastal rendezvous with Nimrod, with 460 kilometres to travel. They would need to cover around 30 kilometres a day, a big walk in ideal conditions, let alone for men past their peak health, walking over crevassed and icy terrain in freezing temperatures. Though they retreated at speed, both Mackay and David were by then suffering from substantial damage to their feet, making the hauling even more difficult. Fortunately, the Nimrod was still in the area looking for them, though the first deadline had passed, and on February 4th they heard a shot indicating that the Nimrod had seen them and that the end of their ordeal was in sight. David and Mackay needed medical attention for their frostbite injuries, and all three took several days to adjust to eating standard meals again. In the end, the team had been out sledging for 122 days, finding that the pole had moved from its expected position to further inland. They had undertaken the longest unsupported man-hauling journey ever recorded in the South. I know in recent years contemporary adventurers have undertaken man-hauling treks to test themselves against the elements, but I don't know if any have actually beaten that early trip record. Mawson and his colleagues did manage geological, glaciological and magnetic work, amongst many other measurements, collections and surveys, later producing detailed maps of the previously unexplored areas. So the trip was much more valuable than just reaching the pole. While they were out, Shackleton's four-man team was undertaking their attempt to reach the geographic South Pole, and they had been experiencing their own dramas. While we're focusing on Mawson, I think it would be worthwhile just having a quick look at Shackleton's experiences. They had the ponies to assist in hauling their gear, and had left camp on October 29th, a couple of weeks after the northern team. Probably because of the horses, they had optimistically planned to cover 30 kilometres a day, hoping for just a 91-day return journey. But soon the horses began failing, and they soon had to reduce rations to allow for many more additional travel days. On November 26th, they made it to 82 degrees 17 minutes south, the southernmost point recorded by Scott before he was forced to turn back in December 1902. They continued across the more challenging barrier surface, where they lost more horses. Then they discovered a vast glacier ahead, which they named Beardmore Glacier, for one of their sponsors. Crossing this glacier, they lost their final pony to a crevasse, wild almost following him down. So they now had to manhaul their kit to make their destination too. The diaries of these men also reveal personal tensions as the conditions deteriorated, with Wilde at one point expressing a death wish for Marshall in his diary, and Marshall writing disparagingly of Shackleton, being tedious company and always panicking. This would have been an unusual view of Shackles. He certainly developed an aura of fearlessness and indomitable spirit over his exploring life, despite some seeing him back in England as a bit of a boaster and a showboat. He certainly had a redeeming future ahead of him anyway. On December 26th, they'd reached the polar plateau, but they were now on severely reduced rations to allow for their return travel, and it was very hard going. On January 1st, Shackleton recorded that having attained 87 degrees 6.5 minutes south, they had now beaten north and south polar records, and Wilde and Marshall were then lobbying hard to turn back, before they put themselves in an unrecoverable position. Shackleton was furious, writing, If we only had Joyce and Marsden here, instead of those two grub-scoffing useless beggars, we would have done it. Easily. 
and he pressed on for another couple of days before yielding on the 4th and turning back. He revised his goal, stating the team had triumphed in coming within 100 miles of the geographic South Pole. They planted their flag there and named the Polar Plateau after King Edward VII and turned north to return to Ross Island. Indeed, at 88 degrees 23 minutes south, they were 97.5 miles from the point. That's 156 kilometres, though, in very harsh conditions, with fewer calories available each day. So there is no doubt that the decision to abandon the attempt was likely a life-saving one. Their return journey took another 73 days, rations being cut further to allow for the extended trek, now well past the revised 110 days. The Nimrod was to leave the base on March 1st, so they had to press on despite their fatigue. On February 27th, when they were still 61 kilometres out, Marshall completely collapsed. Shackleton and Wilde decided to make for the hut to ensure they could meet the ship and then send healthy men back to rescue Marshall and Adams, who would wait with him. Fortunately, they reached the rendezvous point late on February 28th and they set fire to a small wooden hut there used for magnetic observations to attract attention. And the ever-vigilant Nimrod crew did see them. It took three days before Shackleton, Mawson, McKay and McGillian could retrieve the other two men but by the 4th of March, everyone was on board. Mawson would have been glad to see them back, not just because they had all arrived safely. Shackleton's instructions were that if his party did not return before the Nimrod must sail, some of the men were to remain another year at the hut, and Mawson was to lead a search party southward for the missing men as soon as possible. So, the Nimrod expedition was a success. All the men had returned, some suffering only relatively minor damage from their time in the horrendous conditions. They had made it to the magnetic South Pole and within 100 miles of the geographic South Pole. They had gathered a vast amount of scientific data, weather measurements, made surveys and gathered many valuable specimens. They had tested the value of motor vehicles in the environment and could all rightly be proud of their achievements. It was time to pack up and head for home. Mackay, having vowed never to return to the polar region after their ordeal, later joined the ill-fated Karluk Arctic Expedition in 1913. Their ship became trapped in the Arctic ice and was crushed. The survivors set up a camp on the ice and prepared for a trek to nearby Wrangell Island. But Mackay and three others were impatient and they set off earlier to make their own way. All died of exposure in the attempt. David and Mawson were greeted back in Australia as triumphant heroes and the press reported on their exploits with pride. They gave speeches and were bestowed with numerous awards and honorary memberships. David returned to his university position in Sydney and then later served his country in World War I. Mawson made his way back to Adelaide where he was again warmly greeted and acknowledged for his efforts. He also returned to his university position in Adelaide, having vowed at the end of his trek never to set foot on the hostile Antarctic continent again. Instead, he concentrated on his work and his field trips. On one trip to Broken Hill, now an explorer of high esteem, he was invited to the home of BHP manager Adam Boyd, and he met there Francesca Del Pratt, the daughter of BHP's general manager. He looked ahead to furthering his career, and a trip to Europe looked like the next advantageous step. But, like the fading pain of childbirth, over time Mawson slowly revised his feelings about Antarctica, and he began to consider just how much more science and exploration there was to be done there. He began to consider just what Shackers before him had done. The best value might be to lead an expedition of his own, an Australian foray into the South. Adventurous people will want to take the lead, The apprentices wanted to become their own masters even before the original masters were done with exploration themselves. So we'll leave Mawson here, now pondering another trip to Antarctica, the trip that would become the Australasian Antarctic Expedition. Before I wrap up, I wanted to recommend a podcast for those of you with an interest in science and humour. 
The Infinite Monkey Cage is presented by Brian Cox and Robin Ince and is a brilliantly clever and funny exploration of a range of scientific questions. Joined by subject-appropriate scientists and other smart and funny folks, they take a topic and thoroughly explore it with maximum interest and enjoyment. Who knew learning deep stuff could be so interesting and entertaining? I'll put a link to it on my page, of course. And remember, there are lots of maps, illustrations and reading list links at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au for this episode. Join me again for the final part of Mawson's story on the last Friday next month. This time the Australians will take the lead and Mawson will be instrumental in Australia's ongoing presence in Antarctica. But his expedition will experience rather more tragic outcomes. Antarctic travel is in no way benign and this time they will experience the unforgiving elements. I just wanted to let you know I've been testing a new microphone this episode. Do let me know if you think it's substantially better or substantially worse. I know a couple of folks have mentioned to me that I'm a little too quiet. (laughs) We'll see how we go this month. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe if you've not done so already. And have a safe and happy few weeks. I'll talk with you again next month. Cheers. Cheers.